Hello everyone and welcome back to the Fan Fiction Tapes. I'm your host today, Maya Pronouns She Her, and today I am joined by Hello again, I'm Barry. Uh been a little while, but I'm here again, ready to guest. And I am our producer Ian, once again in the co-host seat for Dylan, who is not feeling well again today. Today's episode, inspired by the fact that for you lovely listeners out there, it is now October. Or maybe it's not if you're listening to it way in the far-flung future. But it's supposed to be October. We're doing some spooky things. I'm wearing a new Seattle Kraken jersey. Today's episode is What is Horror? Which is a very good question. That is a very good question, because it's something that people often have kind of a inaccurate impression of to say the least it's not uncommon when you hear the word horror that you think of movies like silence of the lambs uh, rocky horror picture show scream cabin in the woods you know lots of blood lots of viscera lots of screaming maybe some cheap jump scares and it's often kind of given this, I want to say derogatory, but that's not the word I'm looking for. It's looked down upon by a lot of people. And that's doesn't really give horror a fair shake. Horror is a lot more than just the slashers and the bad movies that paint trans people in a bad light. At yes, Silence of the Lambs. I like how we both said different movies there. No, I said there's a lot of those. Oh, <laughs> I thought you said Rocky Horror Picture Show, which also has some issues. A um, little. But at least that one is enjoyed by queer people. We're off topic already, and we're three minutes into the recording. <laughs> ADHD talking hour, everyone. I was going to say autism talking hour today, but nope, it's the ADHD is back in control. I feel so represented now. Oh, yeah, we have a true ADHD talking hour today. We are light on the script. I am not a huge horror connoisseur. I've, I think the only horror I have actually intentionally consumed is a novel by T. Kingfisher. Come on, brain, don't fail me now. Nettle and Bone? Yes, thank you. Yeah, there we go. I haven't even read the... Book for our story spotlight this month, yet I need to go and borrow it from the library. Meanwhile... Fortunately, that is why we have me, and especially, Barry. Uh, yeah. I'm a big fan of horror, I'm a big fan of everything to do with horror, and I am so glad to be here because I can talk about all the different kinds of horror, and all the different horror things that are out there. This is going to be a very fun episode. I'm okay. I can already tell. So, let's talk about some of the other genres of horror that aren't slasher horror, as the most well-known genre of horror is called. Probably my personal favorite genre of horror is psychological horror. Oh my god, I love psychological horror. Mm. I haven't consumed much of it, uh, mostly because I'm usually more easily distracted by shiny things. But what I have consumed of the genre, I have really enjoyed. I think a stellar example of psychological horror is the movie Get Out. Get Out is a masterpiece of horror, psychological horror, of tension buildup. It's a great thriller. It's, it's just really good. And... I think it's a modern classic, honestly. Yeah, I'd say that's that's pretty fair. Get Out is... Uh, there's a little bit of viscera in the movie, but not until the later half. And it's... Honestly, in terms of things I've seen, I've seen more gore in, like, a Marvel movie. Yeah. And it still manages to be... It manages to have me gripping the edge of my seat when I watch it. And uh, more than a little unnerved by the end of the movie. It's definitely a movie that makes you think about not just society in the obvious racial commentary sort of sense, 
but it also makes you think about the kind of manipulative people that are out there in the world. And that's a key part of psychological horror is making you uncomfortable in very personal ways. And I dig that. And it's not the painful uncomfortable that comes with the really unfortunately common ha-ha social anxiety moment shown in, like, every goddamn show ever. Oh, yeah. It, it's an uncomfortable that is actually kind of fun in its own way. And that that's kind of, I think, largely the appeal of horror, is it makes you some form of uncomfortable that is, at least to the person who enjoys that genre, enjoyable. Absolutely. Like, if I had to throw my own psychological horror series into the ring as one of my favorites and one that encapsulates the genre it's the silent hill games i'm not familiar with the silent hill games why don't you elaborate a bit i've heard of them but like kind of the level of here of where i'm not certain if what i'm thinking of is resident evil or silent hill okay. if that makes sense well the series is about a town called Silent Hill. Uh, I think canonically it's in Maine because it's a very Stephen King-inspired series. I think Maine it's in is Maine. a phenomenal location to set a horror series. There is... Ooh, I thought of something I'm going to mention later. Uh, okay. On. The games are psychological horror, obviously, and they revolve around themes of guilt and pain in ways that feel personal without also feeling overbearing, I guess is the way to put it. The games are all set in the same continuity, essentially, but they all follow different protagonists with different personal issues that manifest symbolically in the different monsters they face, the different puzzles they run into, the different obstacles surrounding them, and I think a good way to exemplify that is to bring up the story of probably the best and best known title in the series, which is Silent Hill 2 on the PS2. The protagonist of that is this normal 20 to 30 year old, uh, I think he's a clerk or a cashier named James Sunderland. And he goes into the town because his dead wife wrote him a letter saying that he could find her there. 20 to 30 years old and married? Yeah. That doesn't sound normal to me. Well, he's not a normal guy. <laughs> uh, he's actually a very strange fellow, as you'll see throughout the game. Uh, he's the kind of guy who, no joke, this happens. He will see a bottomless pit. And his first response is, I gotta jump in that. Uh, th that seems like a reasonable first response to seeing a giant gaping pit. Yeah, in terms of impulses, that is absolutely something I would do. But it seems kind of weird to consider the possibility of dying in a deep, dark pit in a town that wants to kill you. And he does shit like that throughout the entire game. Yeah, I, I may be a little... I may be a little um, biased in favor of going in the dark uh, as someone who has a history of spelunking. See, spelunking is my psychological horror. Oh, it's great fun. I love doing it. I, I, should, I should go caving again. It's fun. You do that, and I'm going to stay <laughs> where I don't get killed. Anyway. I haven't died yet. Well, I can tell that. Bold assumption. Anyway. So James is, again, his wife's already dead. And then he gets the letter. So already, that's a big part of the hook, is what happened to his wife? Her name's Mary, by the way. Why is she here? Why is she alive? And then it keeps building on that. Because things just get weirder and weirder. And never in a way that's, like, visceral or jump scary, but more... Once you realize who James is as a character, everything he's experiencing and has experienced and will experience makes a lot more sense. And that's psychological horror to me. Something 
scares that are personal and that trip you up in certain ways. And I don't know if I want to spoil Silent Hill 2, but it came out like 20 years ago, so... Uh, that game might actually be older than me. Good for you. I'd have to look it up. I think it's like... Let me look it up. Go ahead. Hey, oh, oh. <laughs> it's close. There you go. It's 01. I think if 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 a me- piece of media is old enough to be a legitimate uh, topic question on Ask Historians, um, don't worry about spoilers. Okay. Well, spoilers for Silent Hill 2 anyway. It turns out that Mary did not die when you think she did. James says at the beginning of the game, while he enters into Silent Hill and leaves his damn car door open, first of all, because again, the guy's kind of weird. Early hint of that. He leaves his car door open and then goes into the town. And he's not like close to it at all. It's on an overlook. And then he goes down a damn cliff, then ends up in the town, then starts jumping down hole after hole. I'm getting sidetracked. Mary did not die three years ago. Mary died a few days ago. And she was ill, very ill, terminally ill. The disease is not what killed her. James is. And then bits and pieces of the story start coming back to you. And it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, I I can see how that would. Because throughout the game, he runs into situations and people that mirror illness, uh, unhappy marriage, sexual tension, all these things that are uncomfortable on their own because of the themes they represent. But then the twist happens and you realize not only are these all James's frustrations, it's the town's way of taking revenge on him. Oh, and the town's alive, by the way. It, it does this shit on purpose. Fascinating. To sum up this long diatribe, that is what psychological horror is. It's horror preying on your psychology. It's not ooga booga and it's not a bunch of blood. It's what are you unnerved by? And then it shows you that and it tells you to look at it. It points a finger at the horror It tells you to stare at it. And maybe you'll see something new underneath it all. On a related note, as you kind of got into it, I was reminded of uh, one of the pieces of horror I have willingly consumed. Uh, I just forgot about it because uh, my brain is made of Swiss cheese. Things fall through the holes and out the other side. And horror, especially supernatural horror, and wow, my brain is failing me today, psychological horror have a long history on the internet there is a subreddit r slash no sleep that holds a lot of this type of horror um and there's one series on it that i am a particular fan of and is often referred to as the staircase in the woods series although i believe the technical name is the a search and rescue series where the it is purported to be kind of like a confessional post from a search and rescue officer in the United States. Uh, and th- these types of posts are not uncommon on Reddit. So the medium there is actually a really good choice and it gets into some, it starts off with what are probably based on true stories from search and rescue officers of people that, go missing and you never figure out what happens. People go missing all the time. Just a reality of the world. And the woods is one of the places where it happens. And if you've never been camping in a more isolated stretch of the woods, it can get kind of spooky out there. And as the more supernatural elements start to ramp up throughout even just the first post, you're questioning how much of it is and isn't real. And it, for me, 
most of this series felt rather plausible. While the staircases, while the titular staircases are strange and weird, it's somewhat believable. And honestly, that's the spooky part. Yeah, that's part of it. Is the plausibility of what's going on drives a big part of it because it's too outlandish no one's gonna really be scared by it of course as i mentioned psychological horror isn't the only type isn't the only genre of horror i mentioned supernatural horror when talking about the staircase in the woods series which if you search like no sleep staircase in the woods or no sleep uh search and rescue you'll probably find it pretty easily it's uh it's a good read but i don't recommend reading it uh, between the hours of 12am and 5am, which is, I think, what I did the first time I read it, was I just stayed up all night reading it. Oh no. And it wasn't just like I couldn't sleep after reading this, just like, by the time I finished it was time for me to get up for the day. Well, I guess that's part of the point of no sleep. <laughs> I think it's more meant to keep you up at night than, um, distract you all night. Fair. Supernatural horror, I think, is how most of the popular author Stephen King's works would be. Yeah, yeah, that sounds categorized. Right. That that's one of the problems with boxes is things don't fit well in boxes. But that's true. Supernatural, I think, generally fits most of his works fairly well, from the fairly popular It and The Shining, mm -hmm. both of which have had successful movie adaptations made of them to works like Pet Cemetery that are, I think, maybe a little bit less known and less in kind of the uh, the public eye. I feel like I hear about Pet Cemetery a lot, but that's just because maybe that's just because I'm into horror. And so I just like notice it more often. That's possible. I remember hearing talk growing up about The Shining as this really well-made, terrifying horror movie. And then I remember when the It movies came out. So to me, those were like, okay, that's what's most well-known of his works to me. Right. And supernatural horror kind of deals with these supernatural elements in some of Stephen King's works. It is often particularly featuring the undead and in Nettle and Bone, as well as, I believe, others of T. Kingfisher's work, it is The Dead Come Back. Uh, Shining, Ghosts Haunt the Hotel, I think. I don't know what the deal with it is. I think it's a bizarre-ass clown. Uh, okay, well, I know it's a clown. It, but um, it's it, not a clown. It's not. It a looks clown. like a clown. That's the point. It looks like one. It's not one. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a duck. Have you seen the way that thing talks and walks? That's a duck. It's mutated. From from what I understand, the clown is basically the the lure on the anglerfish that is the actual monster. If you want the short and appealing version, it is a shapeshifter that eats kids. If you want the long lore version, it's a shape-shifting alien that is constantly stymied by a turtle. Fascinating. Some of Stephen King's lore gets a little ridiculous when you actually think about it for a bit, but... I wouldn't be surprised if that were on purpose. Authors will do stuff like that to amuse themselves. Yeah, I've done Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. It's not even like a normal-sized turtle. It's just... Big turtle. Big psychic turtle. But is it a turtle which carries the world on its back, such as the great Atuin? I hope I pronounced that right. Sadly, no. Also, Stephen King is a character in his own lore. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> We're laughing, but I'm not kidding. He shows up in the Dark Tower series. I am amused by that. It's funny. That sounds like something I would do, honestly. Given that I have played a D&D &D character that was canonically possessed by my own ghost? Yeah. Spooky. 
It was really more unhinged. What is unhingedness but spooky made manifest? It's a lot more than that. That that game was... That, that game wasn't very spooky. It was just kind of more... A bunch of high schoolers were deranged and permanently sleep-deprived. Oh, so like all high schoolers. I... More than the norm. Oh no. Yeah, it's a miracle we all made it to adulthood. Oh wait, shit, we didn't. Anyway. Supernatural horror, that's where we were at. Yes, supernatural horror. I think this is where the locked tomb would fit in within the broader horror spectrum, if it really fits in anywhere at all. It's kind of... Locked tomb is, as I'm certain Ian and I have said before on this show, it's hard to pin down in any one place. Yeah, that... If anything can be described as unhinged, it is the locked tomb. It is phenomenal. And there's there's some spooky, scary skeletons. And a lot of undead. Ooh. It is... A it lot is of a, undead. It is a series where uh, a number of characters are, in fact, necromancers. About half the cast. Yeah. It's actually... Somewhat less than that, but eh, semantics. The first book, Gideon the Ninth, kind of falls into... If it falls into any horror genre, I would probably put it under psychological. I would agree with that. It's um something of a... It's, again, the locked tomb is hard to pin down, but... One of the many genres that have been that that Tasmir threw into the blender to make Gideon the Ninth is definitely thriller and locked room mysteries. Yes, that is. There's a big element of locked room mystery with uh, some eldritch horror thrown into boot. I feel like the eldritch horror really ramps up more in Harrow. Oh, it it does ramp up more in Harrow, but it is fundamental to Gideon. Hmm. Neat. Yeah. You, you should you should read the locked tomb, Barry. Will do. Join us. I can't us. believe I haven't recommended it to you before. I usually recommend it to everyone within speaking distance. You may have, and I've just completely forgotten. We probably have. We are very normal about the locked tomb. Apparently, yes. yes. This series will not burrow into your skeleton and, and wear your bones as a corset. Absolutely not. It will not hurt you. It will not change your brain in fundamental ways. No. It is a very normal book series. Go read it. I will read it. How many times did you read the new short story? Twice in a row. So far. So far. I still need to read it. You do. When you do, can you can you maybe help me figure out what's going on with the coffins? There's a lot of detail spent on that that... Uh, hmm. Hmm. Sounds like I need to go to Barnes & Noble and buy a new book. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes, any excuse to add to the hoard. <laughs> My hoard currently includes multiple copies of Gideon through Nona already. I have a problem. Hmm. No, you are very normal about it. Because it is a very normal book series. Yes. I, I need to get a new copy anyways. It's like the uh, like trade paperbacks or kind of the real cheap versions of books, you know, like the ones that some of the early Dresden files are in. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word. I honestly, I love that format of books. It's... I don't know what it is. They smell nice. I like them. And also, I feel I would feel break. less bad about annotating those because they're cheaper. Oh, right. Horror. I got distracted again. Yeah. Same. Yeah, right. Um, uh, ghosts. Scary. That's supernatural horror. Where was I going? I had a point. I swear it. Don't look at me. I can't remember it either. Ah, I remember. I was trying to get to Neil Gaiman. So, mm. people who consume popular media, I assume we have at least one of you listening to the show, 
and we're not just all a bunch of weirdos who consume the same thing over and over again. But you may have heard of the Amazon show Good Omens, based on the book of the same name written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett, of course, has come up before on the show during our comedy month. Unfortunately, the audio quality on that episode isn't great. I guess you could say it was a comedy of errors. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you're coming to Neil Gaiman from something like American Gods, where we've mentioned him last, or if you're coming to him from Good Omens, you may not necessarily expect Neil Gaiman to come up on a horror episode, but I think you've got to mention Neil Gaiman when you're talking about modern horror. Most of Neil Gaiman's repertoire... I don't know why I said repertoire, because, like, bibliography is, I think, the established terminology here. Most of his work is more of the horror persuasion. In particular, Sandman and the works uh, containing The Endless, and also Coraline. Oh, yeah. Oh, Coraline, yeah. Which... There's a funny story about Coraline, which, if you haven't heard, I'm going to share it for you right now, where his editor, Neil Gaiman's editor, upon reading the manuscript, was not certain it would be publishable, and said, you know what, I'm going to read this to my daughter, and if it's not too much for her, we'll publish it. The editor's daughter wanted to keep reading, and so the book was published. However, the editor's daughter has since said at the time that she was absolutely terrified. She just absol- she just needed to know what would happen next. There you go. And I I actually haven't watched a Red Coraline because I am a big chicken, actually. I am often quite afraid of things. Buck buck. <laughs> <laughs> Deserved, frankly. Uh, I am... I'm always scared of consuming things that are going to scare me, and I don't know why. Because it's never really that bad. But I have heard a lot of things about Coraline being spooky. I do remember, though, my mom warning me not to watch uh, Silence of the Lambs when it was up for one of the movie marathons I was doing with my friends. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I came home and made fun of her because it really wasn't that bad. I mean... Okay, it was that bad, and I hated the damn movie, but it wasn't that scary. It was just bad. I I have a bone to pick with Silence of the Lambs, and the bone to pick is primarily in the character of Buffalo Bill. Figured this would be coming. Uh, yeah, those of you who are familiar with the movie and who heard my... um. Opening baseball bat swing, you probably saw what I'm about to say coming. Go off. But for those of you who don't know, Buffalo Bill is a serial killer in the movie Silence of the Lambs who is attacking women, killing them, raping them, and skinning them. And then wearing their skins. Which is, frankly, horrifying. And... Buffalo Bill is unable to be caught by the FBI, so the FBI turns to convicted serial killer and cannibal Hannibal Lecter, who is, I believe, a former psychologist and also genius. And most of the horror of the movie revolves revolves around the tensions between Hannibal and the main character. I forget her name. Clarice Starling. Thank you. But the bone I have to pick has nothing to do with Hannibal Lecter, although I'm certain there is bone to pick there. Buffalo Bill is a particular characterization of how trans women are seen by a largely large parts of cisgendered society. It was probably largely (laughs) in part due to Science of the Lambs and the Rocky Horror Picture Show that a lot of the language we see used about trans women it is trans women used today to, you know, hunt us down and kill us comes from these depictions. And it's I don't like it, to say the least. And that is <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about an understatement. 
And this is honestly, I think, a good thing to talk about this episode is horror, monstrosities, and queer identity. Because as queer people, we are often kind of... Well, we're often otherized. And to some degree, this we will identify with the monsters because that's how society sees us. We are, we are called groomers, pedophiles, child abusers, and rapists just for existing. So it's not that surprising that we might identify with something with fangs and claws, something that is also seen as this dangerous predatory creature simply for the way it exists. And this has led to some great works and some works that have also explicitly painted us as the bad guy, as the monster, the it, the other, the strange thing in the dark coming for your family. Rocky Horror Picture Show, something I also mentioned in early on in the episode, is a fairly queer movie from the 70s, I believe. Might be wrong on that, actually. That sounds about right. It is a strong part of queer history. Yeah, 1975. There you go. Damn, my parents weren't even born yet. Mm, mine were both alive, and in the United States, even. My parents are old. I say that because I know none of them are listening to episodes right now, and I can get away with it for at least a couple months. Back to the point I was making. Well, it is a part of queer identity, and it is definitely something that was enjoyed by queer people as <laughs> one of the first post-Haze characterizations of queer characters, the way it dealt with the topic of a transgender character in the form of Dr. Frankenfurter hurts a little sometimes for uh, especially the younger members of the transgender community where we see this movie and all we can think of is the pictures the news paints of us today. So for our listeners who enjoy horror or who want to write horror themselves, please be delicate with your characterizations because horror is shaped by the fears of the society. It's shaped by the anxieties of the world around us. See the rise in zombie movies around the times of increase in immigration anxiety, for one. And if you wanna if you want to start a fight with scholars, which you should do because it's really funny, mention Edgar Allan Poe and the orangutan. Edgar Allan Poe is a pretty famous American poet who wrote primarily horror. The only work of his that I've read is The Telltale Heart, which is I, I really liked it, honestly. But there is a poem of his that has been debated by Poe scholars for a long time. Because depending on the way you interpret it, Poe could be someone who criticized the presence of racism in American society, or someone who was virulently racist. The reason for this debate is that the poem features the murder of two somewhat wealthy white women in, I think it was Boston was the setting. And the m description of the wounds of the murder and the detective's guesses as to stuff about the murder are, you know, they find coarse hairs. They f wounds are, I think, strangulation and, you know, big bruising from brutish animalistic hands. And the murder is revealed to have been done by an orangutan that was smuggled from Africa to the United States and then either released or got out on its own. It could be, it, on its own, a criticism of how colonial, colonialism not only actually hurts the people that are within the colonial nation, but does other bad things as well to the people it steals is just generally all around bad which in today's day and age should not be that controversial a take but poe lived a long ass time ago and poe was an old ass white man to be clear uh what you are talking about here is not a poem ah damn it i misremembered something again it's one of his short stories 
the murders in the Rue Morgue. Yes. And it's generally also considered to be one of the first detective stories. Really? I did not know it was considered one of the first detective stories. Yeah. Well, there you go. Learn something new every day. One of today's lucky 10,000 every single day, gamers. The uh, the the viewpoint character, C. Uh, Auguste Dupont, is basically a prototype for uh, other fictional detectives like Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot. Ah, uh, it's in Paris. Yes. Wow, I was way off with some of that. Boston and Paris are very similar if you, you... ignore all the differences. <laughs> <laughs> They've both been involved in revelations I have learned about in history class. There we go, that's the similarity. I've solved the case. There you go. Vive la Boston. Anyway, go on. I was probably actually just correlating the fact that he was from Boston with the setting of the short story being there. That would that would track for the way my brain works. There you go. And so while there is that interpretation that I've described, there is also the interpretation that this was about black people in the United States having rights. Because one of the most common racist narratives about black people is their threat to the purity of the white woman. Ugh. I... Ugh. That's... It is a phenomenally terrible argument that it not only manages to denigrate black people, but one forgets that black women exist, and two also reinforces the sexist handling of women within society. Anywho, I'm getting off track. And so this has caused a lot of fierce debate amongst Poe scholars because it's not really clear what he meant, and I don't know if he ever actually elaborated. It's a very interesting subject, I'm sure. The debate as to whether or not he was a progressive in a time where that wasn't really a thing or a product of his time that didn't live up to our standards which you can say about a lot of historical figures, in, especially in the entertainment sort of circuit. As my own sort of addendum to this, I didn't want to say anything because Maya's on her soapbox and it's very precious to her. <laughs> this is going to sound very cheesy, but I feel like the real horror, the type that needs to be addressed, is the horror of treating other people as subhuman based on how they're born. Because we're just trying to have fun, we're, we're talking about horror fiction, but life has created its own real horror, and it needs to be addressed when talking about fiction, because of how it can lead into stories. Our fears create horror fiction. And when people are afraid, irrationally, of other people for no reason, it can sometimes create very problematic, very stereotyped, and very prejudiced art. I mean, hell, just look at f***ing Florida right now. Oh god, don't get me started on Florida. Come at me, Ron. I'm ready for you, bitch. If Ron were a horse, he'd been gelded 15 years ago. <laughs> but I don't want to start making glue, so... Oh, yes, the thing I also wanted to mention this episode, as we are running low on time, we, we started off with horror and video games, so why not end the episode with more horror and more video games, but not one that's older than most of the people here right now. Oi. Hey. It's as old as me. Close enough. Let's talk about something that's basically brand new. Larian Studios' Baldur's Gate 3, which uh, the official release was pretty recently. A couple of weeks ago, I think. And it's amazing. It is probably my favorite AAA game since the release of Destiny 2. As someone who's not a fan of Destiny 2, that is still very high marks. Yeah, I mean, you know how much I love Destiny 2. I do. <laughs> and for those of you who live in a rock, like one of my friends, actually, who I was talking to him about video games, and he, I realized he had never heard about Baldur's Gate 3, and I was like, how? Because it had been out for several weeks by that point. Fully out, not just in the public beta that had been going on for about the last three years, 
but the actual full release that happened recently that caused it to basically take over the internet until Starfield came out. Baldur's Gate is a video game that's basically Dungeons and Dragons, the video game. A lot of the mechanics and lore and magic of the world comes straight from the books published by Wizards of the Coast. And it's really fun. It's a lot more fun than regular D&D sometimes. At least the combat is, because instead of controlling one person and hitting the war crime button, I control five people and hit the war crime button several times. There you go. A full contingent of Geneva Convention violating misfits. It has some horror elements to its own, primarily like Eldritch and Cosmic Horror, which we'll be getting a lot into later this month, but I couldn't talk about horror, especially not af- right after playing a bunch of Baldur's Gate 3 this morning and dealing with some of those elements myself, as you start out on the ship of a Mind Flare or an Illithid, a squid-headed creature that's reminiscent of... Lovecraft's Cthulhu that also eats brains for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Dessert, too, if it can manage it. Indeed. And this sets the narrative already, and then you find out you have a Mind Flayer tadpole in your eye. Something that, well, has a bit of a ticking clock on it, as within a couple days you are bound to be forcibly transformed into a mind flayer. Not a pretty fate, I must say. So already that's body horror, eldritch horror, and even a little bit of psychological horror, just because it preys upon the fear of being controlled and being used as a tool and stuff like that. So already, like literally 30 minutes in, it hits you with horror adjacent tropes like from character creation just it's great and then it kind of lets you forget about it a little bit and then uh hits you in the knees with a baseball bat of mind flares i'm not going to elaborate on what that means because that would be spoilers i am at about 60 hours in i am in late act two i'm not even done with act two yet so good and so big. There is so much to do in Baldur's Gate 3, but I digress. I'm getting off topic again, as I do, I think unfortunately. We all have. I really need to get that game. You do. And... I, I, you will enjoy it, Ian, ba- based on mm-hmm. your reaction to uh-huh. yeah. the locked tomb. Yeah. See, now I'm, I'm, I'm very quite familiar with illicit lore from the D&D source books. And so my reaction here is it's a shame that Ceramorphosis um, irrevocably destroys the host's personality. That could be fascinating setting for a D&D game. Anywho, really all I have to do to get Ian, the producer, to uh, be interested in Baldur's Gate 3 is tell him there's an Ianthe in the game and just kind of... Jingle that worm on a fish hook in front of him until he jumps. There's a lot of things in Baldur's Gate 3 that are very appealing, such as the tall, muscular demon lady. All of the women. Mm, all of the women. All the female uh, companions are. Oh, they're a riot. But especially Carlac. Carlac is great. She's my favorite. If you don't love that burning cinnamon roll of muscle, there's something wrong with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, Baldur's Gate 3 is very much, I wouldn't say it's a horror game, but it's definitely an experience that lets you take in all of the horror tropes that D&D can usually bring in. It's, D&D has some capacity for horror trips, and you know what, I we've mentioned a lot how horror, while it is often especially with queer minorities, popular with minorities, can also be used to bash on minorities because D&D is quite the example of that. Unfortunately, as much as I love the hobby, Wizards of the Coast, y'all got some racism problems. Jesus. Yeah. The most famous D&D module, I think, period, and one that 
has definitely, in my opinion, set public perception of D&D in a certain manner within the genre of gothic horror, Curse of Strahd. I actually have the book, and I have the book that Wizards of the Coast released to fix the rampant racism inside Curse of Strahd. I'm not even going to dispute any of that. That's, yeah. It deals with a lot of particular stereotypes of the Roma people that are just outright harmful and that are still perpetuated today in a lot of Europe. Yeah. It's... The, the Romani are mistreated. Badly. Ironically, Baldur's Gate 3 is a good example of queer horror. I put in air quotes because it's not horror fully. There's a lot of gay. Yeah. Shadowheart. Yeah. Good old shart. Alright, we are running up on our time and we have talked about all two th Oh, actually, nope, we, we haven't talked about everything in this script. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy an extra long episode. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be extra long on this one. We'll be about enjoy average on long. Ian, you put this in the script, so would you mind introducing to us and the audience... Stephen King's Three Types of Horror. So this is a quote from Stephen King. And I almost brought this up earlier when we were talking about the works of Stephen King. But then, you know, the ADHD took hold and we veered off in a new direction. As one does. Yeah. We've mostly been talking about different types of horror in terms of different subgenres of horror. But this quote addresses a more general distinction in the ways horror can creep you out or scare you. So the quote is, The three types of terror. The gross-out. The sight of a severed head tumbling down a flight of stairs. It's when the lights go out and something green and slimy splatters against your arm. The horror. The unnatural, spiders the size of bears, the dead waking up and walking around. It's when the lights go out and something with claws grabs you by the arm. And the last and worst one, terror. When you come home and notice everything you own had been taken away and replaced by an exact substitute. It's when the lights go out and you feel something behind you. You hear it. You feel its breath against your ear. But when you turn around, there's nothing there. That's, uh, oh boy, that's, that, that's spooky. And as someone yep. who <laughs> sometimes hears things that aren't there, um, yeah, a particularly vivid image. Because um, usually, like, I'll hear the, like, the, the, as if the TV is on in another room of the house, it's late at night, I'll get up, I'll walk around, and the TV won't be on. I'll go back to bed. I'll get up. And I hear the noises again. Rinse, repeat. Yeah, uh, that is, I would agree with that assessment that terror is the worst one. Yeah. Because. Because it's the subtlety and it's the mind filling in the blanks, isn't it? That's what's most horrific. Because you can see a big monster or a pile of intestines anywhere. But. When you can't see something, that's the darkest part of it all. Yeah, I mean, when there's a, like, a clear and present outright threat, I think, you know, there, there's room for kind of this hopeful defiance. But when you don't know what there is, your own mind becomes your own worst enemy. And that's... Mm, that's the spooky bit. Yep. Which, ending the episode for a circle, is something else Silent Hill 2 does. Because there's monsters you only vaguely see in the fog. There's invisible creatures. You hear things shuffling around before you ever see them. You see and hear things that disappear, like, basically as the camera changes. And that's scarier than if you saw every giant monster in full glorious PS2 detail. Yeah. 
All right, I think that is probably enough material for an episode. Yeah, probably. probably. A little. I'm a little. Uh, I'm a little disappointed that we didn't really touch on Cosmic Core today, but not too disappointed because we're going to be doing a whole episode on that. Yeah, we have weeks. a whole episode on that. I didn't want to get too into it um, because I know you can really deep dive in Cosmic Horror. I mean, hell, you could have a whole episode about McRacist himself, H.P. Lovecraft. Don't Google what he named his cat. <laughs> For the incessantly curious, his cat was named the N-word with a hard R. Yes. Yes. It is worth pointing out that when he died, he recanted those views, but for much of his publication history, he was a big racist. Yes, he did eventually realize that being racist was bad, actually, with a capital A, but he was pretty f***ing racist. Yeah, in his earlier life, he was racist even by the standards of his time. I recall that he once had a nervous breakdown after finding out that he had Welsh ancestry. That's like mega racist. And I think that is, I think that is actually a large inspiration for his story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. What, the nervous breakdown or the Welsh ancestry? Finding out that you have monstrous ancestry. Yes, because that is basically the plot of that story. It's real shame our Welshman isn't here right now. Yeah. Yep, to a real one. I I hope he can he he he's feeling well enough to join us for the Cosmic Horror one because I do want to see the live Dylan reaction to that tidbit. <laughs> yeah, that that'll be an interesting experience. Until next time, folks, I am and always have been Maya. I'm Barry. And I am Ian. Until next time, bye.